Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning uh, to uh, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we're turning to Ephesians chapter 1. In the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning our reading at verse 1, although this morning we'll be concentrating on verses 4 uh, through 6. But we'll begin at the beginning uh, to set our context. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. A few weeks ago, uh, we said we wanted to begin a new series, and we were going to be looking at what we call the doctrines of grace. Uh, We were wanting to understand what does God's grace mean, uh, and what does it look like when we talk about the salvation of sinners. And really the aim of this series is doxology. The aim of this whole series is praise, uh, that it would feed praise uh, in the life of uh, the people of God, that we would be like the Apostle Paul who could say, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, uh, that from him and through him and to him uh, be all glory. Uh, that glory belongs to God forever and ever, that that is the the aim uh, that we should be uh, looking at as we think about God's work of salvation. And as we looked at the last time, we looked at our, our fallen condition. We looked at what does the Bible say about humanity. Uh, and we highlighted that Human beings in the scripture are not neutral, we're not innocent, but rather we are fallen. And scripture uses many different descriptions to capture uh, something of the distortion that has taken effect as a result of our first parent's sin. We looked in Ephesians chapter 2, and you remember in Ephesians 2, Paul described uh, our natural condition now as being dead in our sins. To be dead is to be uh, unable to respond. Uh, It is an inability uh, to to move and to live and to interact. So to be dead in our sins is capturing something of how we have been separated from life, but also our inability to do anything about it. So we are in a helpless state, according to the scriptures, when it talks about our condition. But you remember that Paul used other uh, descriptions about the human condition. He described us as by nature following the prince of the power of the air, 
that we were living according to the passions of our flesh, that he said that by nature we are children of wrath. And so as Paul was describing the condition of humanity, he describes us as those who are cut off from the favor and fellowship of God, that we're unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. But then more than that, he begins to describe uh, an antagonism, a hostility that characterizes the human will. And that's what we're meaning when we talk about the language of total depravity. Total depravity is not saying that we are as wicked as we possibly could. What is being meant by that is, is that our depravity, our corruption, touches on the totality of our being. That every aspect of what it means to be human has now been stained by sin. So that our mind is now stained by sin. It's not a reliable guide, ultimately. That even though people can reason and oftentimes can come to right conclusions, our minds are not always faithful. Our will, likewise, will be tainted. It'll be distorted away from what God wants to what I want. Our affections, while can be a compass in some sense, at the same time are not a reliable guide either. And so scripture is telling us that there's a problem with humanity. That by nature we have sinned against God and we have been cut off from fellowship with God. We are dead in our sins. But as a result, our minds, our will, our affections have all been affected. And, and we need to realize that if we're, and be convinced of that if we're going to understand the work of God in salvation. And so this morning, as we're turning back to the letter of Ephesians, we want to see what accounts for salvation, if that's true. If sin actually touches on every aspect of our life, if we are actually dead in our sins, what accounts for anyone turning to the living God? What accounts for people living and delighting in God if these things are true? And you remember last time in Ephesians 2, after Paul says all these things about our, our corruption and our condition, he says there in chapter 2 at verse 4, but God, but God. That's the turning point according to scripture. God being rich with mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. He has made us alive together with Christ. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying that God intervened. Paul is describing the work of salvation as a work of God's grace. That God initiates it. That God brings it to pass. And it is dependent on God in all respects. And so this morning we want to come back to that idea how is it that God makes us alive together with Christ? What does it mean that God takes the initiative? What does it mean that God intervenes so that those who were dead might be made alive? How is it that God changes those who were living as, as children of wrath to becoming children of God? What accounts for this change? And scripture explains that as the gracious choice of God. Who, who shows his love 
towards those who were dead in their sins and brings them into the family of God. And so this morning we want to see that because God's love, uh, uh, because in his love God chose to save sinners before the foundation of the world, we ought to praise him for the, for the fullness of his grace, for the, for the extent of his grace. That God's grace goes beyond providing a savior. God's grace is from eternity to eternity. That it goes back before the foundation of the earth. And that's what we want to look at this morning. As Paul begins this letter, after he begins with his customary greetings uh, of who he is and who he's writing to and extending a, a blessing uh, to his recipients in Ephesus, you notice there in verse 3 how Paul begins. He begins with an outburst of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul just bursts out like we were singing there in Psalm 65. It, the idea of this pouring forth uh, of praise to God, uh, or in Psalm 119, uh, it is this pouring forth. It bubbles up out of Paul. And if we're sitting here this morning saying, I'm not where Paul is, uh, where praise just is an instinctive reaction, where, where God's greatness is just at the tip of my lips, then we should at least ask the question, how did Paul get there? How is it that it becomes so instinctive for Paul that when he begins to address people, he begins with praise? It just feels natural for Paul to praise his God. And you notice here that as he does so, he says that God has blessed us. Uh, God blesses us in many ways. He blesses us physically. He blesses us materially. He may bless us emotionally, but God blesses most importantly spiritually. Meaning by that, God provides us what we stand in need of in terms of our eternal soul. And you notice there that Paul says God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Meaning by that, that everything that we stand in need of because of our corruption, because of our depravity, because of our sinfulness. God has blessed us with everything that we stand in need of in Christ. To the praise of his glory, God has intervened and has brought his blessing to pass. And you notice that as Paul says all these things, uh, that God has blessed us uh, with every spiritual blessing, he is able to connect that with God's choice. Notice again in verse 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him. And then in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. The language of choice, the language of God's election, the language of predestination should not make us nervous. It should not make us nervous because it is the language of Scripture. All Christians have to affirm predestination. All Christians have to affirm God's election. Election and predestination are simply capturing the fact that the Lord takes the initiative, 
that the Lord intervenes, that the Lord is directing all things. And so here, as Paul begins to talk about how God has blessed us, he, he links it with God's choice. God has acted and he has chosen to bless people in Christ. And that is highlighting uh, of God's uh, marvelous grace. The language of choosing uh, simply emphasizes the Lord's purpose. And you see it throughout this whole section. Uh, Paul again and again alludes to it. But it's throughout scripture. God chose David. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel. God chose Jesus is called the chosen one. You can't escape the language of the Lord's directing his purposes to understand the story of the Bible. It's the Lord's direction that is shaping all things. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. And so if we're going to understand the Bible, we have to see it as God's purposes directing all things. And Paul says God has blessed us in Christ even as he chose us. And he wants those who have come to faith to understand that even their faith, even their position is an act of God's grace. So that they would marvel that they have come to this place where they believe in God themselves. Not just that he was gracious in giving his son, but that they would themselves come to embrace that. That too is part of God's blessing. That too is something that God himself initiated and directed. And so as we're looking at verses four through six this morning, we want to think about the nature of God's choice. And then secondly, we want to think about the result of God's choice. Again, we hear the language of election. We hear the language of God's choice. And we might uh, be suspicious. We might wonder to ourselves, do we even need to think about this kind of stuff? Is it really helpful for us even to think about uh, this kind of stuff? But you notice that as you read the Bible, that the Bible calls attention to it. That Paul and the apostles and even the Lord Jesus calls attention to it. Because it's important that we understand fully, more fully, the work of God's grace. Because the more that we understand God's grace, the greater our capacity for praise the greater our ability to give thanks to God. And so the, the wider our scope, the deeper our devotion to God. Our doxology simply gets bigger. And it's for that reason that Paul calls attention to it. Notice again, if we, as we come to this passage, it says, even as he chose us, God chose his people. But then the Apostle Paul then goes on to give six phrases that describe what he means when he says God chose. The reason why Paul gives six descriptions of that choice of God is because Paul himself sees it as important. That we would be able to, to work it over and to be able to see how it shapes all things. God's choice shapes the life of faith. God's choice shapes our understanding of salvation. God's choice shapes our understanding of the gospel. 
And so Paul begins uh, his letter here with praise. He bursts out like a fountain of water. But he is praising God because he thinks about the fact that God chose to save sinners. And we want to think about then the nature of that choice and then secondly, uh, the result of it. Well, first, uh, there is the nature of that choice. Uh, God chose us in Christ and he chose us before the foundation of the world. Paul writes there, even as he chose us in him, Again, in verse 5, he says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Maybe you had the experience of uh, playing sports uh, as a young person, uh, and all the kids are going to play baseball, or they're going to play soccer, they're going to play hockey. And all the kids are together, and they have to get into two teams, and so they, they have two captains. And so one captain looks out at the, the crowd of kids, and then they, they pick Billy because Billy's bigger than the other kids and they want Billy on their team. The other kid picks out Jason because Jason's the oldest and so they think Jason will help their team. The other guy picks out Mary Ann because Mary Ann's a good team player and she passes well. The other one picks out Sally uh, because Sally has good footwork and is able to, to deek around the other team a lot. And they're picking each other. They're picking people on the basis of their skills based on what makes them distinct from the crowd. There's something about Billy. There's something about Mary Ann that makes them more desirable to be on your team. And so as they're picking their teams, they're trying to pick who do they think is best fit to help them win. But you notice here as Paul begins to describe God's choice, the choice of God is not based on the recipient's. He says there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him. The basis of God's choice was not because he saw something fitting or appropriate or desirable in the believer. His choice was based on the fact of his son. That the choice was given through the son. And so uh, it is an appreciation uh, of how God's choice comes to be. Paul writes elsewhere that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does not choose to bless some because they're more worthy. It was all according to God's own free choice, his own pleasure. Isn't that what God taught the people of Israel? While they're in the wilderness, there's this spirit of pride that can easily mount up. We're the people of God. We're better than the Philistines. We're better than the Egyptians. We were chosen. But what does God tell the people of Israel? In Deuteronomy 7, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Why did he choose Israel? He chose Israel because he chose to love Israel. His purposes were his own. He did, it, he did it according to his own pleasure. 
He did it to his own praise. And now here is Paul explaining God's choice. God has chosen us, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul says we should praise God. Blessed be the God and Father because he has chose us in Christ. Not because we are more noble, more worthy, more righteous than others. But God chose in Christ. His purpose, his reasoning is based on his son. And there it lies. God's choice is his own. The human heart always wants to find something to boast in. Something that we can look at and allow us to think, of course God is favorable towards me. I've done X, Y, and Z. I've, I've helped others. I've been a good person. I've been generous. God chose me because he delights in me. Or we might think God chose because he looked down the corridors of time and he saw that what I would become. And yet Paul says God chose based on Christ. Even as he chose us in him. There's nothing in ourselves to boast in. God's choice strips us of pride. But the second thing that he says about this choice of God, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Paul turns our attention where we might not naturally go to. We might naturally think that Paul would say, even as he chose us who came to believe in the Lord Jesus. He might focus in on our conversion. He might say, when you came to believe, there's God's choice. Or he might say God's choice was shown in and through the cross of Christ. Something that happened years ago, but we're seeing God's choice to save. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes back into eternity past before the world was created. Think about that. When we're young, it's hard for us to imagine the world before we existed. We look at photo albums and we see pictures and we're, we're saying to ourselves, where am I? Where am I in this picture? Oh, you weren't born yet. There was a time before I was born? Yes. As we get older, we start to see that uh, we're getting older and we see people who are older than us. The world has been going for a while. But even the world has a beginning. But Paul here says, before the world existed... God chose. God's purposes go back into eternity past. And it highlights that God's choice uh, was made then. Before anyone had done anything, either good or bad, in order that the purposes of God's election might continue. Because it's not based on works, but on the purposes of God's grace. You think of Jesus' high priestly prayer. In his prayer, Jesus talks about those who have been given to him. In fact, if you read through that prayer, Jesus will say it five times. Those whom you have given me. Those whom you have given me. When were they given to Jesus? They were given to Jesus before he even came into this world. They were given to Jesus even before the world was created. When the Father elected the Son as the Redeemer... He was the redeemer of God's elect. He was given his people then. 
And so here we see the nature of God's choice. It is in Christ, but it is also before the foundation of the world. You read through Ephesians 1 here, and you notice that God's choice is part of God's master plan before the foundation of the world. In verse 10, he says it's something that is worked out in the fullness of time. But then he goes on in verse 14 to say that it is certain to reach its intended goal. God's plan in eternity past is worked out in history, and it is certain to prevail to the glory of his grace. God's choice uh, is uh, shaping all things according to the counsel of his will. What difference does all of this make? It makes a big difference in the way that you live your life. Because we are forced to look around us and to say, is there order to the world that I live in? Or is there chaos? Is life meaningful? Or is life meaningless? Do random things just happen? Or is there an overarching design to it? And what explains that overarching purpose? The scriptures teach us that there is purpose and meaning to life. That that purpose and order and direction to all things comes under the umbrella of God's plan. God's eternal choice to show his glory by saving sinners in Christ. And we see something of the attractiveness of the gospel. Rather than just living our lives looking at things happening in a chaotic random way. We're able to live seeing God's purposes working even through the tragedies and trials of life. God works individually in people's lives, drawing them unto himself as he works out his eternal purposes to the praise of his own name. And so this uh, helps us to be able to live resting in the realization of God's control. But as mentioned, it also has the effect of destroying pride. Rather than living our lives looking at what makes me different. This teaches us that we are all dead in our sins. We have all turned away. We are all corrupt. And the only difference, the only explanation that satisfies why some come to faith is because of God's free choice. God intervenes. God makes a people unto himself. He gives them to his son. His son comes to redeem them in the fullness of time. The spirit comes to awaken and to apply the merits of Christ to their benefit so that they are made alive and come to faith. This removes pride and allows us to live humbly, trusting in God's purposes. So there's the nature of God's choice. Chosen in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world. But there's also the result of God's choice. And there's three things that we see uh, in these verses. One is is that we are chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, Again, in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That language is the language of what was required of a sacrifice in the Old Testament, that it was something that was spotless and set apart unto the Lord. But it is also used to describe the moral purity of the people of God in the Old Covenant. 
But here, Paul is speaking about God's purposes, that his people uh, would stand before God as holy and blameless. That is, is that they would be the objects of God's grace. They would be saints. Paul addresses these people as saints to the saints who are in Ephesus. When you talk to someone and you talk about Augustine or Augustine, and they say, oh, Saint Augustine, Saint Augustine. They may be tempted to lift up these early believers of the church. But as Paul describes the believers in Ephesus, he's describing all those who belong to Christ. Holy and blameless. Those who are consecrated to the Lord and the objects of his pleasure. That's what they have been chosen for. To be the objects of his delight. That they might marvel in him themselves. Not only are they accepted in God's sight, but they are also adopted. Even, it says in verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his own will. God blesses those who believe and gives them a new status. Not only are they approved by God, but they are made children of God. Elsewhere, Paul explains that by nature we are strangers uh, to the covenant of promise. We are aliens, foreigners, outsiders to the commonwealth of the people of God. But in Christ, we become no longer strangers, but sons and daughters. We are changed from sinners into saints. We are adopted. And this is really the pinnacle privilege of the believer, to be welcomed and to be loved by God. And he uses that imagery of adoption. When you think of adoption, we think of it in the 21st century lens, where oftentimes a child is being adopted. In the first century, oftentimes it's a grown adult who's being adopted, one who will be the recipient, the inheritor of the estate. And so the one that is going to be adopted is the one who is singled out with that in mind, one who will take over my belongings, one who will carry on my name, one who will be the inheritor, and one who is therefore to be the object of my affections. But here, Paul applies that language, that imagery, uh, to the people of God. He singles out uh, those uh, who were sinners, and now they become the objects of God's grace. That's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 56. Even unto them I will give mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. They will be treated as sons and daughters of God. On what basis? On the basis of Christ. They will be given all the privileges of a natural son. Because in Christ, they are viewed as God's son. They are welcomed with the love and the affirmation that the father has for the son. They are treated as such. That's why in verse 6, he had, says, he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved son, with whom the father was well pleased, allows us to be welcomed into the family of God. 
So when John says, to all who believed in him, that is, believed in the Lord Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. It was not the result of man's will. It was not the result of the flesh. It was the result of the will of God. They are loved in Christ according to God's choice. Are you a child of God this morning? Have you been adopted as a son or daughter of God in Christ? Paul is not raising these truths to befuddle us, uh, to confuse us, but to rather amaze us by the nature of God's grace. That he works in people's lives to bring them to a knowledge of his own glory. So the result of God's choice, they are accepted as holy and blameless. They are adopted as children of God in and through the Lord Jesus, but also they are those who uh, adore God in response. In verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Actually, you notice in this opening section, that'll be something Paul says again and again, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why is God doing this? To the praise of his glorious grace. Again, we may be wondering, is it really important to be thinking about God's eternal purpose, of God's eternal choice? What fruit is there in doing that? For the believer, it is to marvel, to realize that there's nothing within ourselves that we can point to and say, that's why God loves me. But to be humbled and saying, all glory is to be given to Christ. Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be the praise. Why should we study this for humility? Why should we study this so that we would marvel? That we might be people who are devoted to God. And if we're sitting here as someone who has not yet come to faith, then we begin to step back and to say, what explains the change that would make someone who does not delight in God to delight in God? What explains the devotion of people to this God that makes them not puffed up with pride, but rather lowering themselves to lift up the greatness of their God? And then secondly, ask yourself, have you come to believe in the fallen condition that you have? Do you recognize the reality of sin and the need for God's grace? The scriptures teach us that God has shown his grace in Christ. But it's from the posture of faith, when we believe in Jesus, that we discover salvation is according to God's love. That's what Paul is getting at. In love, he predestined us. In love, he chose us. From eternity past, God sent his son by decree to save sinners. The son came in love to lay down his life for his sheep. It's God's love that is being accented here. And for those who believe, that compels a response of praise. Can you say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless us as we think over these weighty and heavy doctrines. Help us, Lord, not to be tripped up trying to uncover uh, the hidden things, but help us, Lord, to be people who live by what has been revealed unto us and to our children. Help us, Lord, to be humbled, recognizing that our boasting cannot be in ourselves, but must be in the purposes of our God that have been revealed in Jesus Christ. And may by your spirit we respond with praise and adoration. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.